Hello everyone, and as we look together at the story of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strong rock and our redeemer. Amen. The man had it all. He was young, he was wealthy, he was spiritually minded, he was a ruler, a leader in the local synagogue. He was every mother's ideal son-in-law, the most eligible bachelor of his day. Assuming that he's the same man that we read about in Mark's Gospel in a similar story, we're told that when Jesus saw him, he loved him. There was something about this man's spiritual searching, his longing for the kingdom of God, that touched Jesus at the deepest level. It's not often that the Gospel speaks specifically about Jesus loving an individual. In fact, we can count those occasions on the fingers of just one hand. We read of John the Apostle, of Jesus' favourite little family in Bethany, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, and then of this man. And it wasn't just Jesus. I'm sure the disciples, when they saw this man coming out of the crowd, felt honoured to usher him into Jesus' presence. Such a nice change from those backbiting Pharisees and teachers of the law on the one hand, and those rather dodgy tax collectors and sinners on the other, not to mention those annoying little children from whom the disciples had just been trying to protect their master. It's strange how Jesus had behaved on that occasion. He'd taken the infants in his arms and said how the kingdom of God belonged to such as these. The disciples really hadn't begun to get their heads around the implications of what he meant. But now, what a relief to have such a straightforward case standing in front of them. A man of such great standing, of moral stature, who'd obeyed all the commandments from his youth and who'd been rewarded with great wealth. Much like the spiritual heroes of old, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, David and Solomon. Now, wouldn't it be extraordinary to have this man both backing and bankrolling Team Jesus? And perhaps the rich young ruler saw it quicker than Jesus' disciples did. Perhaps he was still chewing over Jesus' words about infants, those with no status, with no power, with no wealth, inheriting the kingdom of God. And wondering what that meant for him, who was quite the reverse, a man of high status, considerable power, remarkable wealth. So did he predict the bombshell before it finally erupted. We don't know, but he didn't have long to wait. There is still one thing lacking, said Jesus. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It's amongst the toughest teaching that Jesus ever gave on the subject of wealth, not least because it wasn't theoretical, it was deeply personal, a lived out example of what it meant when he'd earlier taught that you can't serve God and mammon. And yet it's teaching that explicitly emerged, not from a place of unkindness towards the man or criticism about how he got his wealth or envy or some kind of proto-communism, but from a place of love. To mention those five once again, there's the Apostle John, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and this rich young man. What do we do with status, with power, with wealth, if we have them? 
And in global terms, many of us do have them, even though it doesn't always feel like it. How do we resist the dark tentacles of mammon, which so easily begin to squeeze the Holy Spirit out of us, robbing us of a true dependence on God as our provider, and of the milk of human kindness in our hearts for those in need? Those are a couple of questions at stake here. And a third is this, what does it mean to be part of the family of Jesus? Not just our nuclear family for whom we care instinctively, but part of the family of Jesus. This new community of Christian brothers and sisters, parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, our local church particularly, and yes, the global church too, where human status and power and wealth don't impress anyone, at least, they shouldn't impress anyone. And where our net worth is defined not by the number of noughts on our bank statements, but by the depth of our generosity and the quality of our character. The Jews had a number of ways to address those questions, the most famous of which was tithing, giving away the first tenth of your income to the poor and to the work of the priests. And Beverly and I are among thousands of others in our diocese who adopted that principle from an early age, tithing our pocket money even before we knew each other, then our student grants, our salaries and stipends for more than 40 years. And all that I can say is that it works and God has richly blessed us through it and hopefully blessed many hundreds of others too. To adapt the words of a famous advertising slogan, giving is good for you. But what happens if status and power and wealth really go to our heads? What if mammon and what mammon buys us has become an addiction, an obsession, if my only real concern is me and my closest, nearest and dearest, the nuclear family gathered around me? The word possession, after all, cuts both ways. To begin with, I may have possessions. I possess them and they belong to me. But all too easily, a quiet power shift begins to take place so that gradually I become possessed by my possessions. I belong to them. My identity is somehow tied up in what I have and my life focused on an endless quest to get just a little more. So back to this rich young man, and I suspect that that was what was going on here. That here was a case of possession, of addiction. Indeed, Jesus' response to him was very little different from the teaching of the 12 Steps programme of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the man walked sadly away because Luke tells us that he was very rich, Jesus didn't run after him and offer him a deal. I didn't really mean it. He didn't say, let's, let's agree on 50%. No, the surgery he'd suggested was radical, but it was just what this man needed. It's hard, responded Jesus, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And why is it so hard? Because in and of ourselves, many of us are powerless to prevent possessions from possessing us. 
And just as the disciples tried to swallow the implications of that, especially given their theology that wealth signified the blessing of God, Jesus concluded with those famous words, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now these past few months have been a really challenging time for us all, for our hospitals, for our care homes, for our schools, for our businesses, for our churches, and especially for the poor in our nation and around the world, many of whom have faced lockdown in unpleasant and cramped conditions, who've been disproportionately affected and hit by the coronavirus itself, and who are already bearing the brunt of redundancies and unemployment. Our church finances have been hugely stretched in the midst of it all, particularly those parishes that depend on rental incomes that haven't been coming in and weekly collections to make ends meet. And meanwhile, the churches have often been at the forefront of amazing community initiatives to provide for those who are most vulnerable or financially challenged in our society. And that's not to mention an extraordinary flowering of online worship too, and 101 creative ways to meet the spiritual needs of a nation in shock. An uncertain time like this can have two effects on people. Either we can live fearfully, tightening our grip on what we have, or rather in terms of today's reading, allowing what we have to tighten our grip, its grip on us out of a desire to maintain as much control and security as we possibly can in the midst of such uncertain times. Or else we can live faithfully, opening our hands in generosity and compassion, out of recognition that the church family and the spiritually and financially poor whom we serve may well need some of our resources a whole lot more than we do. Speaking personally, I've ministered on council estates in the West Midlands and affluent communities in trendy Notting Hill. And almost invariably, it's been the poorer communities who have given the most, certainly in terms of proportions, far more than the wealthier ones. And yet I've also seen wealthy individuals open their hands in extraordinary generosity. One man, for example, who was writing a cheque to the church and who unexpectedly and joyfully found himself adding three noughts at the end, and so releasing the extraordinary ministry among prisoners in Wormwood Scrubs, because with God, all things are possible. Some of us will have been financially hit by COVID. Some of us may even have benefited saving money on train travel perhaps, or pricey holidays that have had to be postponed or cancelled. And perhaps this month, generous October, as it's been dubbed, gives us an opportunity to reflect on our lives and our ambitions and our spiritual and our financial priorities. To reflect on what it means to be part of the family of God and not just to cosset my nearest and dearest, and to respond to the challenge of Jesus to open our hearts afresh in service of the one who so radically opened his heart to us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul once put it, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich.